All right, everybody, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We will begin in verse number 7. Romans 3, starting in 7. God willing, we'll finish the chapter tonight. I hope to finish it tonight. If, if we don't, it's, it's not a big deal. We're still, according to my schedule, doing okay. So, Romans 3, verse 7. We're right in the middle of a thought. Uh, in fact, I'm tempted to read, at least read, verses 5 and 6. But I'm not going to. Romans 3, 7. For Paul says, For if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie unto his glory, and you can put my lie in quotation marks, why yet am I judged as a sinner? So uh, we, I think we ended here last week, uh, or it was just around this part, but I want to start here. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good starting point. So remember that Paul, what Paul used to be. Paul used to be a zealous, faithful to uh, the Israel nation, faithful to the old covenant of Moses, faithful to the entire culture and society and everything that was around it uh, in Judea. Very loyal and to the point of uh, fanaticism, you might even say. And hunted Christians and brought them to uh, his own perverted brand of justice, right? That was his M.O. And now he's a faithful defender and proclaimer of that which he persecuted. That's almost a direct quote from the man himself. He is the one now proclaiming that which he once tried to destroy. So the Jewish community, whom he left in that sense, I mean, he is still a Jew. He didn't renounce his nationality. He didn't renounce his ethnicity. He just left, he rightly acknowledged what God's plan entailed, and so in followed God out of Judaism. But those Jews that did not do that look at Paul and they see him as a traitor to their race. They see him as a traitor to their culture. They see him as a man who must be a liar. Either he was lying before when he was all pro-Moses or he's lying now when he's all pro-Jesus. So one way or the other, they see him as a liar. So Paul says, if I am a liar, then the whole point of lying is to better yourself, right? No one lies. I mean, I suppose you can come to some bizarre scenario, but generally speaking, a person who's going to lie is going to lie for their own betterment. They're going to lie for their own glory. They're going to lie for their own advantage, whatever the scenario might be. So Paul's answer basically to that is, if I'm lying, then what am I getting out of it? If I'm lying, you're hating me for it. If I'm lying, you're persecuting me now. I, I left the team that was doing the persecuting to join the team that's being persecuted. Christians aren't persecuting Jews. It's only a one-way street there. So if I'm lying, where's the glory in that? Why am I being judged as a sinner is the second answer to that. Because this where we left off last week was you had this challenge raised by certain Jews who might hear everything he's been saying about the planning of God and justification through the death of Christ which they're directly responsible for, uh, and they might hear that and say, well, why are we getting blamed for the death of Jesus if that was the plan of God? It sounds like we're in on the plan of God. We should be getting a medal. We should be getting a, an attaboy since we're the ones who put him on the cross. It's such a great thing. And Paul says, no. You, putting him on the cross and killing him was a, a terrible thing that God used to accomplish great good. It was a sacrifice. It was an innocent lamb who did nothing wrong, who was murdered by the guilty party, that God used the innocence of that, that one who was murdered to, to um, purge the sins of the guilty party. Don't, don't cast yourself as the hero of the story here. There's only one hero of the story. It's the one you put on the cross. So uh, why am I being judged as a sinner if your argument is being a sinner is part of the plan of God? You don't get to attack me in that sense. We've got two different arguments there against what they're saying about him. But it, it, the thought continues in verse 8. Why am I being judged as a sinner? And not rather from you people who are saying, let us do evil that good may come. That just 
reiterates what I was just saying. That same idea of, well, let's do evil that good may come. If, if our doing evil brought about the goodness of God, if our <laughs> sin brought about justification, if our wickedness brought about grace, then let's all gather together and do a whole lot of sinning because that's where grace comes from, right? Grace comes out of our sin. And Paul says, perish that thought. God forbid, absolutely not. Your, your, uh, God's grace is not coming out of your sin. God's grace is coming as a result of your sin or in response to your sin as a corrective measure against your sin. So, and not rather as it, we be slanderously reported and some are saying that we're saying, let us do evil that good may come. Some are taking the preaching of Paul and presumably Peter and John and other the apostles of Christ and the Christians. And they're taking that and they're saying, it sounds like they're promoting this idea that the death of Christ was this horrible thing that God used to, to provide salvation. So uh, the, I guess that means the death of Christ wasn't that horrible if some good came out of it. The ends justified the means. No, that's not what it is. Um, you, you, your being a sinner does not make... Uh, your being a sinner brings about your damnation into verse number 8, or your condemnation, your modern translation may say. But in spite of your deserved condemnation... In spite of that, God is providing salvation. And, and, and I've said this before, but it's the most amazing way to think about the sacrifice of Christ is that um, Jesus' death saves the people who killed him from the punishment they deserve for killing him. You, you, know, you see what I'm saying? Like if Jesus hadn't come at all, they'd be guilty for other things. But among the things he will save them from is the guilty verdict that they deserve for killing him. While he's on the cross, his death is there to save them from the crime of them putting him on the cross in the first place. And once you can wrap your mind around that, you can really appreciate, even on some small level more, what a sacrifice it was, what an act of mercy and love it was for him to go to that cross in the first place. When any of us, us probably would have just noped out of there and not done it at all. Whereas he was willing to do that to save us from the crime of killing him. It's amazing. So, series of questions and answers. That's where we are in chapter 3. It's, he takes everything he said in chapters 1 and 2, and he says, Now I hear what you're saying. You're saying this, and here's the answer. Well, what are they saying? Among other things, verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Are, uh, are Jews not any better than Gentiles? Or shouldn't Jews be better than Gentiles? And Paul says, No. In no way are you better than them. In no regard are, are you more special than they are. Now, if you remember at the beginning of this chapter, like verse 1 or 1 and 2, something like that, Paul asked the rhetorical question. Actually, it's not rhetorical because he's going to answer it. Paul asked the question, uh, what advantage then has a Jew? And Paul says, much in every way, chiefly to them is committed to the word of God. So is there an advantage to being a Jew? Or was there, to put it in the past tense, was there an advantage to being an Israelite in the Old Testament times? Yes, you had the, the law of God written down for you. You had it doubly provided for you. It wasn't just orally spoken. It wasn't just orally passed down from father to son and so forth. But you had it chiseled in stone so you knew exactly what God expected. You had an advantage that others did not have. But that advantage doesn't mean you're better than them. If anything, it's the opposite. It's not the opposite, but if anything, it's that because you now have twice the responsibility. You have twice the opportunities to make excuses because you had it written down. But no, you're not better than them, verse 9, middle of it, in no way. For we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. See, Paul is looking at the, the, um, the lives of Jews and Gentiles in a completely different way. His perspective is totally different from the way these Jews are thinking about it. 
They're hearing everything Paul's saying. These Jewish Christians in the audience hearing the guy recite the book of Romans for the first time. They're hearing this and they're coming up with all these questions that, and Paul is presuming them ahead of time and answering. And they're hearing everything he's saying about their past and is throwing it all for a loop. It's, it's re, um, re, reconfiguring in their mind everything they thought they knew about their history all to make this one grand point, which is your salvation is not because you're a Jew. Your salvation is not going to be because you're a Jew. Your salvation is only because of Jesus Christ, which means it's for everybody, whether Jew or Gentile. And they just don't, they can't wrap their minds around that because they spent all their, their life and generations thinking being a Jew means I'm better than Gentiles. And that was never the idea of God. So, it, so they're looking at it from, from a worldly short-term perspective. My life on this earth, I must be better than those nasty, stinking Gentiles. They eat pigs. How terrible. And Paul says, think bigger. Think bigger picture. You're all under sin. You all have transgressed. You all have slapped God in the face. And you all deserve a spanking for your crime. As it is written, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. You see how Paul takes a question about who is better, and he frames it how everybody is bad. He doesn't say, you're all so good, they're all so good. He says, you're both terrible. Without Jesus Christ, we're all wicked. Without Jesus' gospel, without the blood of Jesus, we're all sinners. So stop trying to compare yourself and make yourself a better sinner than somebody else, because it's the same condemnation at the end of the day without Jesus Christ. As it is written, there is, for Psalm 14, there is none righteous, not a one. And that's just a paraphrase uh, of the whole of that, of that psalm where David just laments the wickedness around him. To continue the lamentation, verse 11, there is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. Everyone is gone aside. Everyone is gone out of the way. Everyone is off the deep end, off the reservation, out left field, whatever phrase we use today, same idea. There is nobody who puts it in their mind to uh, do exactly as God wants them to do. There are some who try. There are some who make it their life's priority and their life's mission to try to follow after God. I mean, what's that one expression that we apply to David? What do we say about David? David was a what? Man after God's own. He was a man after God's own heart. But David was still a sinner. He was not one who could say, but I am not a sinner. You all are, and none of one of you are, but not me. No, David also is in that no, not one, because David, though he was a man after God's own heart, still sinned. Famously, most so with Bathsheba and everything else that followed after that, including basically murder, among other things. So even, even this man who could summarize his life as this one who desired to follow after God, still you could not say David understood. David got it, because even in times, David chose not to get it, chose not to understand so with some hyperbole, with some poetic lamentation, there is none who understand, at least not all the time. There is none that seeks after God. Well, clearly there are some who seek after God, but there are none who are able to perfectly follow God, perfectly in God's footsteps, and never step out of line. Obviously, except for the master. They are all, verse 12, gone out of the way, to continue the statement. And we might say they're off the deep end, out, of, out in left field, they're off the road. They're all gone off the way of God. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. What is it to be righteous? There is none righteous. No, not one. That's defined for you here. There is none that does good. Righteous is not just a state of being. It defines who you are by your actions. Now, you, you can do good things and still be unrighteous because your doing good things doesn't nullify the fact that you also did bad things. But God sees you doing a good thing and says that's a righteous deed. And a person who does good things 
in the Old Testament, thanks to the offering of Christ that is to come, a person that does good things and follows the will of God, can be called righteous, can be deemed as if he was righteous without yet being righteous because Christ had not yet died back then. Today, however, Christ has died. And so those of us who follow the will of God do good things. God defines good things, not us. We don't get to say, well, I'm a good person. I do good things here and there. You're defining your own morality. Like God defined morality. So if I do good things as God defines them, having already been washed in the blood of Jesus, then I get to say I am righteous. So don't read 3.12 or 3.10, 11 and 12, and, and conclude I should never say that I'm righteous. Because John, in 1 John, I want to say it's 3, but it might be 4. Somewhere in 1 John. It might be in 2. Somewhere in 1 John. It's not a big book. Find it. John says, he that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He, he among us, us, who do righteous deeds, is righteous, even as God himself, Jesus, is righteous. In other words, you get to be washed in the blood of Christ and start walking in the light. And in walking in the light, you do the things that God tells you to do. And so you get to be deemed a righteous person. <laughs> Those Old Testament people before Christ came, at best, at best, they could be saved. They, I will regard them as if they were righteous without actually being righteous. And usually, generally speaking, it was just a bunch of wicked people doing a bunch of wicked things. Altogether unprofitable. In other words, what are they offering God in terms of good, good service and good deeds? Not a whole lot. There is none that does good. No, not one. And now he elaborates on that even more. By paraphrasing Psalm number 10, starting in verse 13, people like that, their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues they have used to do deceit. Their poison of asps, a uh, poisonous snake, is under their lips. So with their words, they speak unrighteousness. With their words, they say unrighteous things. Then that comes from somewhere. It comes from an unrighteous heart, and it just belches out of them through unrighteous lips. Verse 14, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's Psalm 10, verse 7. What they say is cursing, which we use that word to mean they say a bad word, but it meant they, uh, it would be more like saying hateful things to somebody. I hate you is a curse, or I wish you were dead, and to mean that sincerely is a curse, that kind of thing. And bitterness, you can hear bitterness on the tone of somebody, you can see it on the face of somebody, someone who is discontented and frustrated with someone else at their own expense, that comes out in bitterness, and that's just oozing out of these kind of people. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That sounds like Proverbs chapter 6 and the seven things that God hates, the, the abominable things. But that's not what uh, Paul is quoting here. This is not Proverbs. It's not a song. He's actually starting a big paraphrasing from Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59. I'll, I'll, you'll see that in just a second. But he just... This is a person who is so familiar with the Old Testament, as we call it, that he's able to pluck from the Psalms, then pluck from Isaiah, and put them side by side, and just trust that his audience knows the Bible well enough to know, oh, he's getting this from there, he's getting that from there. This is from David, this is from Isaiah. But it's all describing a kind of person. He's painting a picture of an ungodly person. He's painting a picture of an unrighteous person, of a person who is left to his own devices without the grace of Christ to uh, catch him when he falls. And this is what he looks like. He falls into a pit where he is eager to do evil, feet, feet that are swift to shed blood. With verse 16, destruction and misery in his way. That's Isaiah 59, verse 7, basically. A person who leaves a trail of sadness and a trail of destruction, like locusts who go through a, a crop, 
when they're done and it's just a wasteland behind them. Wherever they go, when they leave, they leave it worse than they found it. Whereas Christians are supposed to leave a place better than we found it. By our, at least if nothing else, just by our congenial attitude. But you would think also with acts of service and kindness and love and mercy and things that we do, we would leave a place better than we found it. But these people, they leave destruction and misery whenever they leave a room. Let it not be said of you when you walk out of a room. Let people not say when you walk out of a room, phew. How do you spell that? P-H-E-W. I'm glad they're gone. I'm glad that's over with. They slam the door happily. Don't let that be said of you. Even if you're the most unsocial person in the world, <laughs> let it not be said of you that they're glad that you're gone. You should still have something to offer them where they wish you wouldn't leave. Don't overstay your welcome, but you know what I mean. Verse 17. That's just me talking. Verse 17. And the way of peace they have not known. That's Isaiah 59, verse 8. Here's the thing. When Isaiah was talking, Isaiah was describing the kind of sinful person that he saw with his own eyes. This kind of person who would see a beggar in the street and would gladly walk over them rather than give them the money they had in abundance. Who would see a hungry person and would gladly eat the hamburger right in front of them rather than give them even a morsel of it. That kind of person who cared not for anyone but themselves, who did not seek relationships with people, who did not seek to help other people, who didn't care about peace with other people. That's what Isaiah saw and that's what Isaiah condemned. Paul takes that idea. And he says, they, those people didn't know the way of peace. But in a bigger picture, these unrighteous people, these ungodly people, these unsin-washed people don't have peace with God either. Forget peace with man. Good relations with people won't get you to heaven or hell. It doesn't matter. But you, you must have peace with God. And see how he takes that idea about peace with others and he applies it to peace with God in this text as we keep going. In fact, the next verse. That one who has no peace... It's because he does not have the fear of God in his eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When you look at them, reflecting back, it's not any kind of reverence, any kind of awe, any kind of desire to serve or follow after or, or to do the will of God. So they have no fear of God. They have no reverence for God. They have no respect to God. They have no motivation to submit to the will of God. A faithful follower of God has no reason to fear hell or the punishment that comes with it. But a person who does not fear God isn't going to care that hell is a real place. And you telling them that hell is real probably isn't going to do much for them anyway. You must first find a way to break that heart, to, to, um, to turn that mindset into one that is willing to serve a God, a being bigger than them. And once you can turn that, then, then you can appeal to them one way or another. But a faithful follower of God has no reason to be timid or nervous around God or to approach him with, with trepidation. We come boldly before the throne of grace, Hebrews 4. We come boldly before God. But if you don't respect God, if you don't fear God, if you don't fear the power he wields, in ultimately, um, in terms of the, the sending the lost to hell, then it's not going to matter. But you must have the right kind of fear of God. You must have a healthy respect for God. You must be in regular awe of the power of God. Because once that all goes away, once that respect for God goes away, then you stop appreciating what he gives you. You stop being grateful. You stop uh, serving him. And you start worshiping other things, including yourself. So these sinners that Paul's describing here, the, just the general category of people who need the grace of Christ, they have no fear of God. And so when God commands them to be faithful, they scoff. And they have no incentive to obey. They don't want to obey him because they don't love him. They don't want to obey him because they don't fear him. So they won't obey and when they consider the works of his hands, they're not in awe. 
Their hearts are hard, their conscience is dulled, and as he says, they have no fear of God. But Paul is not just talking about Gentiles here, okay? The Jews listening to this, these Jewish Christians are probably looking at their Gentiles over there, probably sitting on the opposite side of the auditorium, thinking, yeah, that's you people. That's you guys. That's your ancestors, not ours. Our ancestors always loved God, right? <laughs> Our ancestors were always walking with God, right? <laughs> Verse 19. Now we know that whatever things the law says, it says to them that are under the law. Who's Paul talking to here? Talking to Jewish Christians. He's talking to Jews. Whatever the law says, it says to the people that are under the jurisdiction of the law, whatever law it may be, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. To whom has God given a law? Everyone. To everyone has been given some kind of regulation, some kind of um, uh, expectation given to them by God. Nineveh, evil Gentile Nineveh, had expectations that they were not meeting. And if that wasn't the case, then God wouldn't have sent Jonah to tell them to get in line lest they die. Israel had expectations from God. The difference between Israel and Nineveh is Israel's expectations were also, also written down. They were still there. It's just God also transcribed them. So they couldn't say, I don't know what God's expectations are. He hasn't sent me a prophet recently. When God could say, it's in the book. Read the book. So whatever things the law says, it says to them that are under law, so that every mouth may be stopped, being unable to excuse themselves or explain away why they didn't do right. And the whole world is guilty before God. Why is the whole world guilty before God? Because God has told everybody what he expects of them. In one way or another, one expectation or another, and not anybody other than Christ himself, the great exception, not anybody has measured up. Not anybody has lived up to it flawlessly. 20, 320. So therefore, by the deeds of the law is no flesh justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's two very distinct statements, so let's take them one at a time. First, beginning of verse 20. By the deeds of the law, there is no flesh justified in the sight of God. No one, Jew, Gentile, whatever, can find justification <laughs> through keeping any law. Even, even in, in particularly, even the laws God gave. There is no justification to be found even in keeping the law of Moses. Don't let anybody say, as I've heard it said, don't let anybody say, well, if someone could have kept the law of Moses perfectly, then they could have been saved. No. No, the whole point of the book of Romans is to say, you cannot find justification in this law or in that law or in this commandment or in that commandment. Justification is only found through the perfect offering of Jesus Christ. So this, the, the, the hypothetical of what if someone could is an irrelevant hypothetical anyway, because there is none righteous, no, not one. None of us were going to be able to do it anyway, so I don't, I don't want to quibble with your, your theories or your hypotheticals. The point that Paul says here in verse 20 is by the deeds of the law, by doing what the law says, nobody gets to be justified. That You don't get to hold up the law and say, look at my list, I did all these things, so therefore you owe me salvation. No, salvation is by grace. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is an offering paid for by the death of the innocent Son of God. So by the deeds of the law, no one is justified. It is Then what's the point of the law? By the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now let me explain that. What is, uh, who, who comes here by White Drive? Or who comes here by Central Avenue? We have a White Drive over here. Do I have a Central? I have a Central Avenue here. I have a White Drive here. Anybody have another highway that they take to get here? That's probably just the only two, right? To get here, at least. They'll take other roads. It doesn't matter. What's the speed limit on White Drive? 
I love Jeff's like, well, it says. What's it supposed to be? Well, it's like 55 most of it, 45 by CCB, so it kind of 45 to 55. Okay. Uh, Central Avenue, what's the speed limit? Slower than the car in front of me, faster than the guy behind me. <laughs> it's always the maniac who goes slower than you want or faster than you need. Um, okay. The, if the speed limit says, let's say 45, the sign, the sign that says 45, and it says speed limit four five. That's not the law. Oh, that that is that's, that that actually that's right. That's not the law. That's a transcribing of the law. That is information to tell you what the law is. Even if that sign wasn't there, because the sign is not every three inches. You have one sign, then you go miles for you to see another one. But what if you turn in front of that sign so you didn't see it, and you start going 65? And the cop pulls you over. Well, I didn't see a sign. It doesn't matter whether you saw the sign or not. The law is the law. The sign is there to inform you what the law is. You follow? That makes sense? Okay. If you break the law, you break the law. If you break the law that you saw written down, now you have zero excuse. You still are guilty even if you didn't know the law. But once you know it and you saw it written down and you still broke the law, now you have doubly no excuse. The Israelites had the law of God. So did the Gentiles. But the Israelites also had it written down. Now, for them were written things that weren't written for the Gentiles. That's a whole other can of worms. It doesn't matter. The point is, there were expectations for the world. The whole world failed to live up to them. Doubly shame on the Jews, the Israelites, because their expectations were also transcribed. They had the speed limit, and they were still doing 75 and a 45. So you don't need a speed limit to tell you you broke the law. What the speed sign does the speed limit sign. I mean, what the speed sign does is tell you that you have broken the law. Because when you blow by it going 65, you see it and you think, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. No, you shouldn't have been, but you already did. The point of the sign is to say what you should have been doing and you weren't. And ideally, you'd be doing right and you'd be approaching at the right speed, but none of us do that. We always slow down when we see the sign changes. So the point of the law, as Paul says here, by the law is the knowledge of sin the point of the written transcribed law is to tell you what God's expectations are. It is to identify when you have already broken those expectations. Okay? 21. Andy? Yes? The law was perfect. And yes, it was. Okay, I just, the law was perfect if a person could accept it to perfection. It didn't allow for any kind of justification once they failed. Well, it didn't allow justification at all. Right, but the yeah. law was perfect if you could have kept it. If anyone could have, the law was perfect. I guess if you're if you're way you're defining it is sin is the transgression of the law. So if you're keeping the law perfectly, you're not sinning. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean that's that's yeah a roundabout way of saying. It. Yeah, yeah, he will say that exactly. The, the law is perfect. It's just the law wasn't designed to take away sin. That's not what it's meant to do. As he says in this verse, and he'll elaborate in other verses. What the law was able to do, among other things, was tell you what sins you've already broken or what you should have been doing or what you need to do better or whatever. Um, but there's no commandment you can follow where you can say, having done this commandment now, I have, I have been saved. Having, there, if there is a commandment that could have taken away sins, that God would have given it. Paul will say that almost verbatim in Galatians. There, there is no commandment that can take away your sins. There's no commandment that can save you from what you have done. Well, then what's the point of the law? And that's where people mess up. That's why people think there must be something wrong with the law. No, there's something wrong with you. And the law tells you that. Well, then what? Then what? Well, then Jesus comes along and he makes you okay again. The law couldn't do that. Jesus can. 21. That's, in fact, that's 21 in a nutshell. But now the righteousness of God, separate from the law. My Bible says without, separate from, outside of, literally, 
Now the righteousness of God, and that's Paul's little pet phrase to describe the gospel and Christ's death and resurrection and all that. The righteousness of God is separate from the law, is made manifest, is fully declared, is presented to all, being witnesses by the law and the prophets. What is the point of the old law? It is to take you up to the Christ. The point of the law is to lead you to Jesus. And then once you reach Jesus, you go through Christ to get to a new life, in fact, a new law to follow. The old law cannot save you, a point we've made uh, already multiple times. So to follow the old law, as the Israelites did, not perfectly by any means, but just generally, to follow the old law and not, therefore, having reached the end of the old law, continue to follow Christ. To follow the old law and not follow Christ after that is akin to getting a treasure map and following it all the way to the X and not digging. The point of the old law is to get you to the X and Jesus has already dug the hole, and the treasure is already open. He just says, jump in and take it. And you say, ah, no. I really like just following the map. I'll just stick with the map. The map is done. The map is finished. Once you're at the X, you've done the map. You don't need the map anymore. The map is fulfilled. The map is done. Well, how come this map just can't give me the treasure? That's not the job of the map. The job of the map is to take you to the treasure. Now, you take the treasure. Take it. The map gets you to it. Now you take it. The old law takes you to the treasure of Christ. you got to take it. And if you don't, then what's, what's even the point of any of it? Verse 22. Well, in fact, let's read 21 and 22 together because it's one big sentence. Now the righteousness of God, separate from the law, is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The old law bore witness to what Christ will do, even the righteousness of God that is by faith of Christ Jesus. Again, verse 21. Go back to verse 21. The righteousness of God is manifested. Forget the rest of the verse. Now God's righteousness is manifested, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Christ Jesus. So God's righteousness is now made manifest. To whom? To a world that is guilty, to a world of sinners, to all who have become unrighteous. Not one of them is righteous. And now to that world is God's righteousness made manifest, the righteousness of God. How is it manifested? By the faith of Christ Jesus. That's not by Jesus believing things. That's not what Paul says. By this system of faith which Christ oversees. By this new covenant. By this new law. By this new way to live in the sight of God. There was once a way to live in the sight of God. I get this commandment that I'm going to keep the best that I can. And when I don't, it's okay because this law gives me all the things I need to do. I've got to take my goat to the altar, offer the goat, blah, blah, blah. And so I got all this law. But it can never actually take away those sins. All it does is it buys me another year. It buys me another year before God blows me up because he's mad at all my sin. The, the Jews' mentality, especially today, the Jews' mentality is uh, you sin, you sin, you sin, you sin all year long, and then once a year you do the sacrifice, and then you start over. And you can sin, 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 and do the sacrifice and start over. And God says, no one's starting over here. I'm just not going to kill you because you did the thing I told you to do in the Old Testament before Christ came. You sin, and you sin, and you sin, and now you did the thing, so I'm not going to blow you up. But all those sins you did, they're still there. I'm looking right at them. And they're piling up. And they're piling up. And they're piling up. You're not undoing your sins every Yom Kippur. The Jews were not undoing their sins every day of atonement. They were still there. But that one offering of Christ, once and for all, washed them all away. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 10. So again, 322. God's righteousness has appeared. And is this righteousness that is seen through this new faith of Jesus Christ, this new way to live through Jesus Christ. It's appeared unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Whether you're Jew or Greek is the implication. 
whoever you are. You all need it, and now you all get to have it. 23. Because all have sinned. As I say, you all need it and come short of the glory of God. The phrase come short, to be lacking, to be in want, to come, well, to come short. That's just, the phrase stands for itself. You, you have this um, gap between you and your destination, you and your goal, which in this case is salvation, not a small goal. And you can reach and reach and reach as far as you want, but you have too many things weighing you down. You have too much baggage in your background, too many things pulling you back, and that's your sin that you may wish you hadn't done, and you sure will wish it if you don't go to Christ, and you sure will wish you hadn't done it when you're burning in hell forever, but thanks to Christ, that chasm between you and God is now bridged. And now you can cross over that bridge and leave that sin behind, and it's not there anymore. Now you can be justified. The point he's going to make in a minute. 24. Being justified. In a verse, I should have said. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Um, it's one big... Let's just read 23 and 24 together. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we who have sinned and come short of the glory of God have been justified freely by His grace. Grace that is through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. What we have in our past, what we have in our record, what we have on the ledger of our lives held in the mind of God, eternal, is a list of all the bad things we've ever done. All the little ones, as we might think it, all the big ones too, all the ones we got away with and our mamas never knew about or our spouses never knew about or our best friends never knew about or the law never knew about, all the ones that everyone knew about and we're living in shame and we move away from town so we leave our past behind us and so no one will ever know and we're in a new town. All those sins, all the big ones, all the small ones, they're all there and they are crystal clear in the mind of God eternal. You, all of you, who have all obeyed the gospel, who have had your sins washed away, you still have done all those things. And some of us know those things. We don't hold it against you because God doesn't hold it against you. But God is not changing anybody's past. Everybody still will always have been a sinner. You will always have been a sinner. You are not changing your past here. God is not changing your past. He's changing your present. He's not changing what you were. He's changing what you are. Because the moment you approached Christ and you obeyed the gospel, just before you did that, you were a sinner. You could say, I am a sinner. Then you obey the gospel. Now, I was a sinner. I'm not anymore. Now that's what I was. That's my past. Now my present is, I'm a saint. I'm set apart from my sin. I'm set apart from a sinful world. Now I'm redeemed. Now I'm justified. Now I'm etc. So, that's the word Paul uses here in verse 24, justified. It's, your sin is not changed. Yes, Jim, your past has not changed. It's as if it was changed. Might as well have been changed without being changed. Yes. In, in verse 24, it talks about being justified freely by his grace. Uh -huh. And then it says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A lot of people say, we're justified by grace. But They're right. Grace by itself is just the good pleasure of, benevolent good pleasure of God. But... Yeah, that's not so right. But added to that is through the redemption that is in Christ. So grace by itself, just just the desire that God wants us to be saved and provides us a way is, is not saving us. That's right, yeah. It's but not the redemption just, that is in Christ mm -hmm. that he offers because of that good pleasure of benevolence that he has. Mm -hmm. That's what the two combined together is what saves. Yes, that's a very astute point. If it was if it was just grace without any clarifying statements or any qualifying statements, then it would just be God felt bad and God just decided to save everybody. But there was a sacrifice at play. A, 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 in other words, you could, you, could, if you could phrase it like this. 
um, without the death of Jesus Christ, God would not have the right to save you. And that sounds, that sounds audacious, but there's a lot of things God doesn't have the right to do. God does not have the right to lie. He, he puts these rights on himself, these limitations on himself. He imposes on himself lest he not be God. God must be just and God must be fair and God must be righteous. And it would not be righteous for God just to, just to feel bad about a sinner and just let them into heaven anyway. So it is not just grace as a, as a naked concept in and of itself, but it is grace that is demonstrated through the buying back of your life of Jesus Christ. That's what the word redemption means. Through the offering of Jesus Christ, purchasing your salvation, that's what allows God to have the right to save you. Because without that, you are a sinner. And God will not allow a sinner into heaven. There will not be one sinner ever living with God forevermore. It will only be the saints. So you better get on board if you're not the saints. When the saints go marching in, you better be in the rumba. Okay, because we're all going to be doing it. So it, you, there's not going to be a single sinner who's going to heaven. Okay? Did I say that wrong? Yeah, a single sinner, not a single one's going to heaven. Because every sinner who was once a sinner has been washed by the blood of Christ. And without the blood of Christ, if God was to save any sinner without the blood of Christ, then he would just be allowing someone who is against his nature to join his nature. And that makes him not be God anymore. So he doesn't have the right to go against himself. He would not have the right to just shrug his shoulders and let you in anyway. That's not how it works. If you want to be saved, it must be through the, the grace of Jesus Christ as seen in the blood of Christ. Through the grace of God as seen in what he gave with that grace, which is the offering of Jesus' blood. Which is really the point of Romans 1, 16. The, the, uh, the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's not Romans 1, 16. Romans 1, 16 is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel, which is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, is what purchases your salvation. You take that away, we're just a bunch of sinners, and none of us can be saved. It's impossible. Add the grace of Christ in through the blood of Jesus Christ, and how could you not be saved if you had the blood of Christ on you? So yes, very astute point. Verse 25, speaking of, in fact, read 24 and 5 together. 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth of Christ, he says, he, God set forth him to be a, my Bible says, propitiation. Yours might say sin offering, something like that. Through, the faith, through faith in his blood. That's what God did so that you could do. God offered Christ as a propitiation so that you, through faith in his blood, can declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So take the piece by piece. God set forth Christ to be a sin offering, propitiation. Some people say that's the same word as mercy seat. It's not the same word as mercy seat. It's the same word that is also sometimes translated as mercy seat. The Jews called it the mercy seat, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. They called it that because it was the place where you would approach God to, to achieve mercy in, the, in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now the mercy seat of God is the throne of Christ. We go to him to attain atonement, obviously. But that idea that we attain that atonement through Christ is because of his offering. And the idea behind propitiation is this atoning sacrifice, this, a, a, a willful offering. So it's this uh, suffering that is done to undo a crime. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was set forth to be that sacrifice so you wouldn't have to sacrifice yourself. It wouldn't work anyway. So God set forth Christ to be this propitiation. Through faith in his blood, that's what was offered as the propitiation. Faith is just reliance on turning to his blood, needing his blood, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness in giving sinners remission of sins. Remission of sins. Matthew 26, 28. 
uh, the sins that are past, not present anymore, because now you're a saint, but you are a sinner. And all that is summarized in the forbearance of God, my Bible says. Yours might say, I don't know, what does your Bible say there? It says forbearance. It means, it means restraint. <coughs> the restraint of God. The, um, he, is, he is doing away with his own need to punish sinners. Here is you, a sinner, who has transgressed and you're not righteous. Not a one of you is. And God looks at you and says, you deserve to die. But I'm going to hold back from chucking the thunderbolt just yet. And instead, I'm going to send Jesus to die instead of you so that through his blood, you can be made clean. And when I look at you, I don't see someone who deserves to die. Now when I look at you, I see someone who gets to live. So he gets to look at you differently. He gets to look at you differently because Christ put himself in between you and him. All that is done to declare, I say, verse 26, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier of him that believes in Jesus. It is not only right to save through the death of Christ, it is what the death of Christ does that makes people right in being saved. So the death of Christ is the right way to save you. It's the only way to save you. And in the blood of Christ, through that sacrifice, through that death, you get to be made right. So he's, he's the right one and he's the right maker. He is right and he makes me right too. He was never wrong and I was. He was right, stays right, makes me right. Just by being in his bloody shadow. 27. Questions and answers. Question. So where is boasting then? And Paul says, it's excluded. So you mean I don't get to brag about my special standing? No. The only one who gets to brag is Jesus, and he's humble. So there's no boasting. It's excluded. By what law is, it, by what law is all this being accomplished? Is it by a law of works? And Paul says, nay, it is by a law of faith. But that doesn't mean there's not something you must do. And if you want to define works in its most basic, primitive, simplistic level as just a thing you do, then yes, there are works you must do. But even in doing those works, you're still not earning salvation. You're just a servant obeying a command. But that's not how Paul uses the word works. Paul uses the word works to mean I do these things to earn something. I do these things to qualify myself for something. So that having done them, I get to hold them up and say, now you owe me. I, I, I did the time. I, I, I put in the work, so you owe me the paycheck of. And he'll, in fact, use that idea in chapter 6 and say, the only time you did was sin, and the only paycheck you earned was death. So you don't get to go to God and say, look what I accomplished, now you owe me salvation. No. God says, do you want salvation? And I say, sure do. And he says, well, then do this and this and this, and it's yours. So I do this, this, and this, whatever it may be that he tells me to do, and I don't get to say I've earned it. I get to say, thank you for the gift. I met the qualifications to receive the gift. Like if I had money, which of course I don't, and I said, Jim, if you want $5, get out of your chair, walk over here. In fact, skip as you walk over here, I'll give you $5. And Jim would get over here and he'd skip, you know, to get his $5. But his skipping didn't earn. You might think he earned it for the, such a ridiculous display, but that's not earning because I didn't have to give him the $5 in the first place. I chose to give him the five. Initially, when I first said, do you want $5? I'm putting it on the table. Now, if he skips all the way over here and I don't give him the $5, then I'm a liar and I'm not God. And God cannot be a liar. So the moment God says, do you want salvation? He's putting it on the table. So now it's there for the taking. But the conditions are also there. If you want it, you got to get up and skip over here and get it. Now skipping to God is, you must put your faith in me. You must repent to me. You must confess your faith in me. You must be baptized into me. And if you do those things, here's your $5. It's already on the table. You're not earning anything. You're a servant obeying a master. If it was such a thing where... I do, I, let's, for example, 
I say a prayer and God saves me. And no matter what I do after that, God has to save me. And I can live as sinfully as I want. And I can do whatever I want because once upon a time I said a prayer when I was four. Because I said a prayer that someone told me and whispered in my ear and I just repeated it out loud. Because I said that prayer and now God saved me. I can live however I want. Well, that makes me the God and him the master, him the servant. That makes him subservient to me. Because I get to say to him, you have to put me into heaven because I bought you. I owned you. I got you. Back when I was four, I said the words, and now you can't condemn me. Now, I'm, the, I'm in charge here. I'm calling the shots. But that's not how it works. If you want his salvation, you've got to obey him. You've got to do what he says, and then after he saves you, keep doing what he says. Because you're a servant. And that's the attitude. We'll finish the chapter next week, and then go into chapter four, which is one of my favorites. Chapter four is next week. Thank you.